to Necessary Illusions. I am your host, MC Squared. On this episode of the podcast, I interview Jim Mason. He is an attorney who focuses on human-animal concerns. He's also an activist, a progressive, and an author, including the book, The Ethics of What We Eat, Why Our Food Choices Matter which he co-authored with Peter Singer, and also the book, which is the focus of our podcast, An Unnatural Order, The Root of Our Destruction of Nature. Thank you for listening. Solidarity forever. He's an attorney, he's an author, he's an animal rights activist, and he is a progressive leftist. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, hello, how are you? I'm good, thank you. So you're in New York, what are you doing in New York? Doing some traveling? I actually am in uh, Norwalk, Connecticut, kind of a suburb of New York City. I have a lot of friends here. I used to live in this area for 25 years, so I'm back here uh, seeing a lot of my old pals. So a, a pleasure trip, huh? Somewhat, yes. So talk, talk to me about your background. How long have you been? Uh, so your training is uh, as a lawyer, right? You were a farmer, uh, a lawyer. When did you get involved in um, writing and uh, getting involved in activism, especially animal rights activism and politics generally? Well, I was raised on a farm in the Ozark region of Missouri, and it's uh, I'm um, I'm I'm pretty old. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was born in 1940, okay. so I was uh, an infant during World War II. Uh, so my first memories are some of the family members talking about the war and Nazi Germany and uh, the Roosevelts and that sort of thing. So. It was uh, obviously pretty primitive farming back then. In fact, during the war, um, you couldn't buy gas. You couldn't buy tires. We couldn't buy a tractor. We farmed with a team of horses until the war was over. So I spent my childhood milking cows and and um, doing farm work. And uh, some of it was pretty unpleasant, pretty gruesome, a lot of cruelty. Uh, so uh, those people who like to extol the virtues of the old-fashioned family farm, I was on one, and um, it stressed me out. I have some PTSD from it today because I started seeing and doing things when I was five years old. Just one example, I was, my job was to tear the calf, the baby calf, away from the mother cow so that he didn't drink the milk that we wanted to collect and sell. And I had to do that twice a day until I started college. So, um, yeah, it was a 
a lovely childhood in every respect, a loving family, a beautiful environment, uh, lots of fresh air and water and good food that we raised on our own in our own garden. But I discovered uh, late in life that uh, those experiences with animals were not good for me. They were not good for my emotional life, my uh, my personality. So, yeah, that's my background. And then I went to college to get away from it all. I used to say that milking those cows twice a day was what motivated me to get away from there and, and become a lawyer. And, um, yeah, so, yeah, that's quite a background. What kind of and, law did you do? What kind of law did you get into? Uh, I started out as a lawyer for the poor. Uh, when I graduated from University of Missouri Law School, in 1969, I took a job in uh, Connecticut in uh, Bridgeport in a um, law office that was funded by the federal government under Lyndon Johnson's poverty program. We were lawyers for indigent people, uh, a lot of uh, African-American people, Puerto Rican people, and poor white people. Almost everybody was on welfare, and they would have problems like uh, some of them want to get a divorce, wanted to wanted to fight for the custody of their children. Uh, they had trouble getting their welfare checks, the Social Security checks, veterans and disability checks, trouble with landlords because they lived in um, uh, low, uh, low-end housing, and there were all kinds of issues in the housing. So, yeah, we represented those people who could not afford a lawyer. So I did that for about three years. Then I went into private practice. Because uh, Richard Nixon, the bastard, basically defunded the whole program because Nixon was a right-wing Republican. And, of course, he hated everything that Lyndon Johnson had done with the poverty program. So we were basically uh, put out of business about 1972 or 73. So then I went into private practice and uh, basically did just general practice, suburban practice, Whatever, whatever walked in the door with uh, a checkbook. So uh, Chomsky, that's one of my favorite authors, Noam Chomsky. I'm not sure if you've read any of his work, uh, but I like his politics. I like his philosophy. He actually described Richard Nixon uh, as the last liberal president. Um, I guess <laughs> a lot of the FDR, um, you know, New Deal uh, measures, um, you know, some of them he, he kind of still left in place. Uh, until they were attacked pretty much with every administration afterwards. And you're saying even, you know, Nixon attacked and tried to tear some of those policies down. Uh, But the way Chomsky kind of describes it, you know, Bill Clinton, Obama, Joe Biden, uh, they're much farther to the to the uh, right of even Richard Nixon. What do you think about what do you think about that Um, You know, description of American political system and, you know, kind of the two party system and how. Uh, I guess over the years, we're seeing a lot of rightward creep, you know, both parties moving to the right. Yeah, Um, Yeah, the whole whole spectrum has shifted to the right. What used to be uh, center, you know, (laughs) everything's moved to the right. Yeah. And what about Eisenhower? Eisenhower put in one of the greatest public work projects of all time, the uh, interstate highway system. And he actually wrote in favor of uh, a kind of a form of socialized medicine. Yeah. And he criticized the military-industrial uh, complex. So that was Eisenhower Republican. My family were all Eisenhower Republicans. The only time I ever heard my grandmother curse 
was when she was talking about the Roosevelts. So, oh, wow. yeah, they spoke of the Roosevelts the way people have recently talked about Hillary Clinton, you know, like they were evil. So that's the kind of family I came from. Well, um, Chomsky, you mentioned Noam Chomsky. I sat in on an interview with him at MIT. Oh, my God, back in the 70s, a friend of mine had been able to reach him uh, to arrange an interview, George. Is this at was, the height of uh, is this at the height of Vietnam? This what? Is this at the height of the Vietnam War or no? It was after that. It was uh, probably mid to late seventies. Okay. George Stefano wrote for some of the local papers, and he was a leftist, a gay man, and he uh, wrangled an interview with Chomsky, and in uh, MIT, and uh, he didn't have a car, so I drove up with him and I sat with George while we interviewed Noam Chomsky, circa nineteen seventy four, five, six. I don't remember exactly. What'd you think of it? What'd you think of the experience? What'd you guys talk about? Do you remember? Oh, it was amazing. Yeah. Well, of course, he's one of the most intelligent men on the planet. Yeah. Yeah, it was uh, enjoyable. I didn't get to say much because it wasn't my gig. It wasn't my job. But uh, yeah, yeah, it was a pleasure to meet him. Yeah, that's awesome. He's a pretty genuine guy. Pretty, pretty nice individual. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was, for someone of his class and stature and fame he was just you know an ordinary person yeah. to us no heirs no pretensions down to earth yeah he's my favorite philosopher i think he's one of the reasons i've been radicalized um <clears throat> i got maybe 70 of his books here to my left uh let me get back to eisenhower um this is eisenhower uh coming at the tail end of the new deal he's got a quote here that says basically he was in favor of the new deal uh, and says basically, should this is quote now? I'm quoting Eisenhower. Should any political party attempt to abolish Social Security, unemployment insurance, and, el- and eliminate labor laws and farm programs, you would not want to hear from that party again in political history. Uh, there's a tiny splinter group, of course, that believes we can do these things. Among them are a very few Texas oil millionaires and occasional politicians and businessmen from other areas. Uh, their number is negligible, and they are stupid. <laughs> I've seen some other <laughs> quotes here uh, from Eisenhower, but he was in favor of the public ro- uh, works programs and uh, the New Deal. Uh, I read a couple of them about att- attempting to abolish the New Deal. Uh, but, yeah, the Republican Party, um, maybe since uh, Nixon onward or you know maybe the Reagan administration, they're trying to roll back all of the New Deal policies from, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. trying to defund Social Security, Medicare, um, unemployment insurance. Uh, and one of the tactics uh, that the right usually takes up is first you defund a public program and make it work poorly. And then the, the public yeah. is outraged. And then uh, the goal for the right would be to privatize it. And of course, Wall Street wants to get uh, a hold of the Social Security money and the private insurance industry would yeah. love to get more of those Medicare dollars, those insurance dollars. That's exactly what the Tories have done in England is they've made the National Health, Health Service um, dysfunctional. So that, you know, people wait too long to see a doctor and they're not, they're, they're just not getting good health services. But the Tories basically have been starving the thing for, you know, decades. And uh, the right wing will do the same thing in this country. 
And it's it's funny because um, usually in capitalism and American politics, um, most politicians and certainly businessmen, corporate executives, which is kind of what Eisenhower was talking about, they can't see farther in the, into the future than a few months, um, always looking at the next quarter and the next quarter's profits. But when it comes to Social Security, all of a sudden they can see 50, 70 years into the future and perceive some sort of funding issue um, and they're concerned about it, which is absolutely ridiculous. They just want an excuse to go after uh, Social Security and Wall Street to kind of, you know, kind of get get those funds and, and gamble them away in the global casino. They're always looking for another profit center. Yeah. They ought to, they ought to privatize the military and see how many people want to, you know, want to want to buy that product. I mean, it's, it's privatized to the point where, um, and I think Chomsky uh, talks a lot about the military industrial complex, which maybe was even coined by Eisenhower, yeah. but yeah, a lot of private industry, uh, a lot of private um, profit, although a lot of the funding of the military-industrial complex, or I guess the majority of it, uh, is public. So basically, the, as Chomsky describes it, the Pentagon is basically basically a, uh, a funnel of public money to private right. high-tech industry, all under the yeah. guise of defense, which actually leads me back to Eisenhower with his public works project in the, in the highway system. That was all under the guise of defense too. That was That's a project true. of um, social engineering. And what some of these um, business interests wanted to do was to defund or dismantle um, public transportation. We don't have high speed rail in this country. The majority of our trains uh, our train rails, I, th- I saw a high speed rail from Orlando to Miami, but the majority of our railroads in this country are private and private freight. Um, if you go and look at Europe's transportation system, or like Japan, public high-speed rail, much more efficient, much um, much more carbon-friendly, environmental-friendly. We have this, um, you know, public works project, this highway system, which is basically a direct subsidy to big oil, um, as well yeah. as the um, auto manufacturers, because without the roads, it would be completely useless. You know, so we we give them this gift of this giant highway system throughout the United States, uh, and it's just basically gifted to big oil and big auto. Because without it, they their products would be completely useless. Now, and it created the whole fast food industry and the motel uh, roadside lodging complex that wasn't there before the highway system. And then, you know, we got the suburbanization, you know, where yeah. we're spread out. We we right. have to take roads everywhere, parking lots. Um, I've even seen some stuff on, like, lawns, how much time, money, effort, energy, water are wasted on American lawns that we could be growing and having more biodiversity. Well, it all, it all to make the automobile more necessary so that you can't get around to all this urban sprawl without a car without burning gas and oil. So, yeah, it was really a, a subsidy to the oil industry. So you spent most of your uh, life in Missouri. I read um, on the back cover of your book, you lived in Virginia, and you also said you lived in Connecticut. So you've been around the U.S. Uh, quite a bit? Yeah, I lived in the New York City metropolitan area for 25 years. Uh, not in Manhattan, but in that Metro area, uh, the New York television and radio, 
and and newspaper uh, markets. So yeah, Connecticut is a suburb of New York City. What radicalized you politically? I mean, was it your well, time on the farm? Uh, when did you kind of get into progressive politics and becoming an activist, an animal activist, and an author? Well, it's, it really started getting radicalized when I was a lawyer with legal services because I because I came. I came to that job in Bridgeport, Connecticut, which is, uh, I don't know if you know Bridgeport, but it was kind of a poor city, a big city, a poor city because it, it was once alive with industry, especially uh, factories, all of which collapsed because uh, the companies shipped everything overseas. So Bridgeport was kind of like uh, in, a, in a downturn economically, so it had need for our legal services. So when I practiced law there with that that uh, Office of Economic Opportunity Program, legal services, I had occasion to actually get familiar with the lives of the poorest people in that city. I knew the Black Panthers. I knew the Young Lords, which was a Puerto Rican equivalent of the Black Panthers. Uh, we had meetings and housing projects. I um, represented people who were like first-hand recipients of racism and the poverty that goes with that. So, yeah, that that really radicalized me because I moved there to do, to do that job relatively fresh off the farm, so to speak. And I, I wasn't politically formulated yet. I didn't know left from right. I was from a Republican family. I, I wouldn't say I was conservative. Uh, I just didn't know much. But uh, working as a lawyer for three or four years, uh, working uh, representing poor people, I was up close and personal with what the economic system does to them, the trouble they have with uh, housing and uh, any kind of benefits uh, they're, not, they're entitled to. So, yeah, it was in, in their access to justice because they can't afford lawyers. So, that radicalized me first, and then somewhat later, once I left the legal services program, that's when I discovered the animal issue through a friend, a girlfriend. She she had a bumper sticker on her car, which is kind of an icon now. It was a famous bumper sticker that said, warning, I break for animals. And one day I asked her about that. I said, what is that all about? And she said, oh, it's this group in New York. So some months later, I was in New York, and I remembered the address, and I walked in to the office and introduced myself and said, hi, I'm a lawyer in Connecticut, and I like your organization. If you ever need me, uh, give me a call. So then months later, the president called me and said, I've got a little project for you. She wanted me to write, because I was a lawyer, she wanted me to draft some model laws, animal protection laws. So my job was to go in there two days a week and do research and write what was essentially a pamphlet that would give greater, tighter legal protections to animals against uh, common cruelties, you know, like chain dogs and strays and all kinds of things. And uh, so that was my introduction after my radicalization working for poor folks in Bridgeport, Connecticut, now I'm beginning to learn about the oppression of animals because they're powerless. They're not legal objects. They're not legal persons. They don't have access to justice that we have. 
their property. And uh, so I began to become much more aware of what the, the society does to powerless beings uh, in the form of our animal cousins. So, yeah, I wrote a booklet of model laws that would create greater protections for animals. And that one thing led to another. So that's by then I was becoming an activist for animals. And then I met Peter Singer and he was writing the book that made him famous, Animal Liberation. Came out in 1975, and he and I talked about factory farming, which is the big book that he and I worked on. It came out in 1980, where we exposed the corporatization of the farming of uh, chickens and pigs and cattle, and uh, so and dairy. So now it's virtually complete a corporate takeover of animal farming, um, especially chickens. It started with chickens both egg layer chickens and meat chickens called broilers. But uh, yeah, they've pretty much squeezed out the family farmer. So that's what Animal Factories 1980 and 1990 was all about. It was about the impacts of factory farming was one, cruelty to animals, two, poor food quality because the animals can only be kept healthy with drugs and inputs and hormones and artificial feeds and so forth. So it harms uh, food quality and safety, and uh, it it's it harms factory farmers. I mean, family farmers, family the old farmers, yeah, right. farmers, were wiped out because they can't afford the expensive systems. So that's what led to the corporate takeover. It was uh, capitalization uh, displacing labor. So instead of having a farmer carrying buckets of chicken feed and water, you have machines that are terribly expensive. It's automated. And uh, the average farmer can't afford to put up the building that does that. Only corporations can afford to install the capital equipment that it takes to house 60, 70, 80,000 chickens. And these uh, these uh, agribusinesses are, from my understanding, highly subsidized by the U.S. government too. So these mega corporations, um, you know, Tons and tons of money uh, also receive tons of um, taxpayer money, and they are essentially putting out that family farmer, that community farmer. Um, and the way I see it, too, um, talking about legal persons or animals not being recognized, not getting those legal rights, corporations are legally people. Uh, there are mortal yes. people in U.S. Yes. law. I think they are profit-seeking institutions. Um they are, you know, given extraordinary rights and protections. You've wrote a little bit about corporations in the book. Um, but, yeah, I, that's what I think the root of some of the problems are in our society, um, especially with um, Citizens United. They can essentially buy elections. And with the Supreme Court equating speech to money, which is just ridiculous. Um, but yeah, I would my, – my – ideal society would not involve corporations. I think we should take them over. I think workers should own and control and operate the factories. Those that work in the mills should own them. So I think one of the major problems also notice the theme in your book and, and just talking about um, human beings. Generally, I wrote down a lot of these numbers from one of the chapters here. 
about just how much energy we use. Um, I think it looks like here uh, what, a thousand-fold increase in numbers of people uh, over the last 10,000 years and a 50-fold increase in person demand. So the impact yeah. on the planet uh, is 50,000 times greater than at the eve of agriculture. So we're just, you know, destroying the planet and sucking its resources dry. But I would say that uh, elites who use a lot more energy, you you made the argument um, or compared uh, a rich society like America and our energy and material uses with some poor societies like uh, Laos and Bangladesh. Um, But what about corporations? For example, Coca-Cola is like uh, perennially the world's largest or biggest polluters and then elites generally you know with their private jets and just the energy that typically rich and powerful people billionaire class a fraction of one percent use um don't you think they deserve certainly the american society and the richer societies the industrialized societies deserve more of the blame than the poorer nations but isn't it just a tiny fraction of us that are destroying the planet of course we are all culpable here uh, but I point the finger more so at the elites, and again, that their extraordinary use of energy, resources, materials, private jets, and the latter, you know. Absolutely. Well, yeah, capitalism flourishes uh, on growth, and we have to have perpetual, incessant growth. On, on a planet or, with finite resources. Yeah, we have to have an increasing number of consumers, people, and an increasing amount of consumption per person. You know, if we lived, if we lived, if, if we used the material stuff, the food and the clothing and the stuff that we need to live with, if we consumed on a, on a scale that we did, say, 10,000 years ago, where the average person only had the stuff that they could carry on their back because they had to move every few weeks. We wouldn't have such a, uh, such an impact on the planet, but look at the average American today, say middle-class people, millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people now have two cars, maybe a couple of houses, so many changes of clothes, they can't even wear them all, which brings me to mention, do you realize that the clothing industry is one of the biggest polluters on the planet because of this nonsense of having to change your style every year or so. Now, I, I don't follow this stuff, but I find out through osmosis, I suppose, from my relatives, yeah. skinny jeans are out of fashion now. Oh, so okay. the past five years, everybody was loading their closet with skinny jeans. Yeah. And now they're not going to wear them anymore. They wouldn't be caught dead wearing skinny jeans because they're What's the French word? Outre, passe. So now they're going to dump all of that stuff. One of my kids, a stepchild, is in the fashion school in Richmond, and this is her specialty, looking at the environmental impacts of the clothing business. And you may realize that our clothing now is mostly made in the poor countries of Southeast Asia, where people work for like $7 a day. That's part of that job transfer. You said there was a, you know, in, in, in Connecticut, and uh, I'm from the Rust Belt. You know, there used to be factory towns, and right, yeah, right. it used to be the, the world capital of production, but the United States right. is no longer that. Although all of that manufacturing has moved, been moved to the cheapest places on the planet, 
Vietnam, Bangladesh, look at the label of about it's just about anything that you buy, especially in the in the in the flashy Gap, Banana Republic, those stores, it's going to be made where where the wages are like dirt cheap. So that's one thing they've done. They basically exported the manufacturing that used to be done in the United States. Now it's done almost, is it, it's not a stretch to call it slave labor. By our standards, those people are wage slaves because they wouldn't have any other choice. Um, so not only does the clothing industry exploit cheap labor in foreign lands, but then it dumps all of this stuff. My uh, stepdaughter sent me a picture of some of these dumps in Africa where uh, poor countries where we actually pay them to allow us to dump ship container loads of old clothing or clothing that didn't sell. And you would not believe the size of the mountains of, uh, of textiles of clothing that's left in these poor countries, some of which is plastic, polyester. It will never, it will never uh, uh, decay. It will never uh, uh, revert to organic material. So that's, that's the kind of stuff that capitalism thrives on. More people consuming more products that are throwaway products that are here today, gone tomorrow, because we've got to keep buying more stuff all the time. Yeah, and just yeah, the, the excessive waste with our society, not just clothes, but plastics, uh, single-use plastics. Uh, exactly. And then, yeah, the, uh, the clothes. Uh, I, I, I've heard from people that, like, um, the clothes on the shelves that don't sell, um, you know, they, a lot of times they just throw it away. <laughs> there's there's uh, people that are um, homeless uh, and, you know, vulnerable that, that could use it. Um, you know, you got some of these stores, I guess, that uh, that, that buy the, the the designer clothes. But uh, from what I heard, like a lot of the the clothes and things like that that they'll sh- sell on the um, on the racks at like Target or Walmart and something like that are just like you know thrown away. And again, food waste, uh, just you know, just mountains and mountains of waste. And yeah, not only do we um, transfer jobs to um, the to countries of the global south with an exploited workforce uh, as part of neoliberalism. Uh, and actually, it works to decrease wages for everyone in the system, not just uh, the, the exploited, ex- extremely exploited wage slaves um, making pennies a day in these sweatshops in some of the countries of the global south. But that actually decreases the wages for American workers who are now in industrialized workers in Europe as well, who are now in competition with this exploited workforce in the global south. So it, it's a very twisted and, and um, cruel system. And again, it helps to keep wages down for everyone involved. But not only that, we have to also ship our garbage to these countries of the global south. Yeah. Uh, like you were saying, mountains and mountains of garbage. And then if we could kind of come back to maybe what a hunter-gatherer, more primitive society might be like, certainly a lot, of, a lot less waste. Uh, certainly if you have to travel around a lot more too you would think um you know there's not going to be <laughs> there's not going to be uh, seasonal clothes and that sort of thing you know whatever you can carry on your back and kind of move to the and, and move to the next spot but yeah i mean we have i remember i went to see falling water and uh, uh the architect i forget uh you know the falling water and outside of pittsburgh uh frank lloyd wright i think was the architect he didn't put uh, a garage in the in the house and he wanted to make the closets really small 
and they asked him about it. And he said, that's because, um, yeah, we just acquire so much junk. Huh? And this is a beautiful house. I don't want people to junk it up, you know. But, yeah, yeah. Just, in, just in capitalist society, American society, Western culture, I mean, we just have so much junk, so much waste, uh, and so much things that we don't need. Well, also, capitalism wants us to buy stuff beyond what is necessary to live on. We have, we have stuff that we don't use that's stored in every part of the house. And we run out of room in the house and we rent a storage unit. And I heard a friend tell me the other day, he knew someone that had not one, but several storage units full of stuff, furniture, clothing, stuff that he couldn't use, but he had to keep it somewhere. I heard that's one of the fastest growing uh, businesses in the country this a couple of years back. The storage industry, Storage Inc., uh, just because Americans have so much junk, they don't even have enough junk and storage space in their house that they have to rent uh, additional space. All right, I definitely want to get into uh, the book, your books. Um, I want to go back here, though. You, you talked about what the, your radicalization, working for poor people, um, you know, maybe some, uh, you said LBJ programs, or is that FDR leftover programs? Lyndon Johnson had the, his big thing was the war on poverty. Okay, yeah, I remember. Yeah, yeah. His uh, his unfortunate uh, his good works, unfortunately, have been overshadowed by his stupidity in the war in Vietnam. Unfortunately, he's always going to be remembered for the the mess of Vietnam and not for his uh, war on poverty, his poverty programs, and his civil rights record. You know, it was. LBJ that passed the Civil Rights Act that really finally got um, African-American people uh, a guaranteed right to vote and to register. So He was, he was pretty LBJ. progressive. He was pretty progressive, especially by modern-day standards, right? Yeah. Well, the big accomplishment, I think, was in the civil rights laws because um, the, the, the South, the, the global, the uh, the South was uh, called the Solid South, and it voted straight Democratic for years. And it was a different Democratic Party. It was a racist party in those days. And um, I know uh, Eleanor Roosevelt tried to get uh, Franklin to do something about civil rights. And he said, well, Eleanor, if I guarantee uh, the vote for black people, uh, we'll lose all the elections from forever. We'll lose the South because it was solid Democrats and they were racist. But uh LBJ somehow managed, because of the power he had, he managed to get the Civil Rights Act passed in the mid-60s, about the same time I was in law school in the University of Missouri. So, yeah. So, yeah, that was a hell of a period, a hell of a time to live. So, anyway, yeah, LBJ, unfortunately, is probably going to go down in history for the war in Vietnam and not for his civil rights accomplishments. But, um, yeah, it seems like, not not much has changed um, since the Civil War. Even if you look at the if you look at the you know the party lines um, with the modern Republicans and the modern Democrats, it's pretty much still on Civil War uh, battle lines. Um, and I would say that there's one. And I, it's not me the first one that's saying this. It's been said over and over again. But there's the U.S. is a one party state, uh, the business party with two factions, um, right. and, and a lot of times. So we have two business parties, essentially, with slightly shifting corporate interests. It seems like, you know, the Republicans have more funding from, uh, you know, big oil and and that, those sorts of outfits. Um, Democrats 
more so uh, with big banking and, and Wall Street. That's who got Obama in the White House. Uh, they tended to prefer uh, Obama over McCain, and he rewarded Wall Street when he was in office. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we basically have two business parties. We have a rural business party, and we have a more um, urban business party. Uh, and the differences between them are very, very slight. Um, but I think I prefer the Democrats um, to the Republicans, not by much. But, for example, what Donald Trump was able to do was ride the wave of populism and working class voters into the White House because the Democrats left uh, the working class uh, decades ago. And then when Trump was in office, he slapped those people right in the face, essentially, with his policies. Uh, the Republicans and, yet they continue, lo- and yet they love him. They love him. He continues to, or the Republicans generally, and Trump while he's in office, continues to defund um, uh, rural health care systems that are, you know, very poorly funded as it is, um, you know, welfare programs. So, um, you know, basically people uh, will even vote against their own interests because they tend to maybe prefer a demagogue like Trump and they despise um, the Democrats, who I really don't see much difference other than rhetoric. But it seems like a lot of working class voters tend to, um, you know, gravitate more to the whatever the Republican rhetoric. What do you think? Why do you think it is that the Democrats have such a problem Obviously, their policies have been awful for the last 50 years. Why do you think the Democrats have such a difficult time appealing to working class voters around the country? And do you see the same similarities that I do, that we have a business party with two factions? And sure, there's some differences, but they're pretty slight. Rural rural people and working class people are disgruntled and they feel left behind because of the Reaganomics. You know, the the right wing has managed to screw them ever since 1980. So they're suffering from trickle-down economics. But because of right-wing media that lies to them and blames it on the Democrats, most of the policies that are causing this disgruntlement are because of right-wing politicians and um, and screwed up the electrical, electoral, electoral system, registration, districting. Basically, what we have is this deck that's been stacked yep, yep. against the rural people and the working class. But they're so misinformed that they cannot analyze where it's coming from. And the right-wing media tells them that it's Hillary's fault and Obama's fault and, you know, the liberals' fault. And unfortunately, the suckers fall for it. You know, look, look what the working class the union people have done to their own unions. They basically destroyed it from within. So, yeah, so they get fed a line of crap from the right wing, which is slicker at this stuff, and the churches. A lot of rural America, the the, the big influencer in the community is one of the churches, usually a, a conservative Baptist or um, the equivalent Assembly of God church. So, yeah. So those poor people who are being disgruntled by the politics of trickle-down economics that started in 1980, and they're so misinformed that they think it's the Democrats and the liberals' fault. So that's where we're at. And the districting in the country and the Constitution that guarantees uh, uh, more votes to rural areas, uh, it's, it's, that's why we're in a mess. It's pathetic. 
Yeah, the gerrymandering, obviously that's a huge problem. Uh, right. Electoral college, I think we need to abolish the le- electoral college. Uh, I think that we need a popular vote. And I also like ranked choice voting, which is done sure. in a lot of countries around the world. I think we should do it here. Um, yeah, and, and the money in politics, we talked a little bit about Citizens United. I totally agree with you in terms of, yeah, people are disgruntled. They're told lies from politicians in the media. Uh, I think the media, uh, there's a right-wing media for sure. And then I think we have kind of a centrist media. That would be the mainstream, like the New York Times, the agenda-setting media, oh, yeah. uh, the corporate media. But they don't read that. People. They're, they're certainly not for working people. They're, uh, they're usually funded by the military-industrial complex and the defense contractors, always pro-war, proxy war. Yeah, a small only a small percentage of the country reads the New York Times. Right. The vast the vast majority of the masses out there in the flyover zone in rural areas, they get their information from right wing radio, talk radio, Rush Limbaugh, who has five hundred clones. When you drive across the country with a radio on, that's all you're gonna hear. You're gonna hear Christian broadcasting and right wing talk shows. They don't read the New York Times. They don't care about the New York Times. They're not going to hear anything. It's all right-wing propaganda from churches and radio talk shows. By the way, who owns all those radio stations? I guess you know about the monopolism in independent radio across the country. The Sinclair system, broadcasting and uh, other... Wasn't well, Rupert, Rupert Murdoch owns a lot of them. I saw he was giving up control yeah. to his son. Uh, I'm not too familiar with the business business model of those right-wing talk shows. But, yeah, I'm sure it's monopolized just like many industries are. And uh, in the newspapers, every little community used to have a county newspaper or a small-town newspaper. And a lot of these right-wing groups have bought up all of those papers. Yeah. And, you know, like the Gannett chain is, is, oh, yeah, yeah. is the worst example. So that's where the average schmo out there, <laughs> Joe Sixpack, is getting his information. Yeah. And it's anti-union, and it's anti-liberal, and it's right-wing, and it's Reaganomics. It's you know that's what they that's that's why they think the way they do, and that's why they love Trump because Trump is going to come in and save them. He was going to remember he was going to drain the swamp. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, yeah. and they, they they don't even see what's happening. They don't even know what's happening. Yeah. And the, uh, the the church in Latin America, I saw it was um, it was part of the center of like liberation theology and left wing politics. But in the United States, the church is certainly um, controlled. It seems by the conservative uh, faction, um, maybe even the right wing, especially as it relates to abortion and um, you know, denying women, women, women a choice in the matter. Uh, but the church is also a place to organize people, to educate people, um, preschools, all that kind of stuff. So that might be one advantage, certainly, at least in the United States, that the right has over the left, because um, there aren't community meeting places. There aren't town halls anymore. Uh, maybe you want to talk about Twitter being a town hall. Of course, that's owned by a billionaire, you know, and with their elite agenda, the elites own the entire information system. Uh, but yeah, the church is definitely um, weaponized for political, you know, uh, political, um, whatever, uh, politics and 
political, uh, I guess, organization. And um, yeah, I think a lot of churches across the country are are certainly uh, yeah in, in favor of their politics. Um, and uh, you know, I think a part of that evangelical vote is what got Trump into the White House. They, they've shown us that they will vote for anybody as long as they're wearing um, a red hat. Why don't we, which is a good segue, though, talking about the church and religion, why don't we talk about maybe your book a little bit? What um, sure. what role do you think religion has in, uh, I got the book here, Unnatural Order in our right. you know, do, dominionism or you know domination over uh, the environment, over animals, over the resources of the world. What role does religion play in that, in our culture and in our society? Well, we have to, we have to establish something. The left, the progressive community, has always sort of looked down their nose at concern for animals because it seemed like a scam, and it has been, because most of the big animal protection groups do a lot of fundraising and very little program. Uh, basically, what they do is show you gory pictures of animal suffering with the promise that if you'll just send us money, we'll fix this, we'll do something, we'll stop this. So there's hundreds, perhaps thousands of these organizations that basically just launder your money. So my book doesn't have anything to do with that part of the animal issue. But I wrote Animal Factories, which exposed factory farming, the corporatization of farming of chickens, turkeys, pigs, cattle, what have you. I realized that... um, it did more than harm animals. Uh, there's more to it than the cruelty to the animals that are in those cages. It hurts consumers, it hurts the environment, and it hurts family independent farming and a diversified kind of farming. It basically harms access to farming because the corporations control the market. So that being said, that book raised a lot of questions to me when I finished it writing it in 1979, it came out in 1980, and I was left with a lot of puzzlement, a lot of curiosity about farmed animals. I just spent 10 years looking at what happens to chickens, turkeys, pigs, cattle, and so forth, and where in the hell did these animals come from? Were they wild animals that we captured? I mean, how did we come to have chickens, turkeys, pigs, cattle? Where did they come from? So I started reading everything I could get my hands on about domestication of animals, which is part of agriculture. It's kind of common knowledge now that agriculture that began 11,000 years ago, when we learned to plant crops to cultivate, when we learned agriculture, uh, it's almost common knowledge that that changed the world because it changed our relationship with nature. Before agriculture, we lived largely outdoors. We found food in the trees and streams. We were foragers, sometimes called hunter-gatherers. But when we become farmers, we stay in one place, usually along a body of water, a river or a marshland. We become sedentary. We don't move constantly in search of food. There's a population buildup. There becomes uh, stratification of uh, class, so you get elites, you get powerful people, and you get uh, exploited members in the in the community, and you get wealth. And some of those 
people have more wealth than others. For example, if you're a cultivating community, let's say in ancient Mesopotamia, which is currently Iraq, the country of Iraq, and your village is growing barley or wheat, and you grow a surplus, year by year, you have more than you can use. So you begin to trade that, you begin to sell it. So now you have a commodity, and you have a commodity-based market. Some of the people in the community control that more than others. They're more powerful. They become wealthy. They become the elite. So that's when we get the stratification of society, and we get um, institutions that reinforce that stratification, like we get uh, concepts like royalty, uh, that people are entitled to be rulers, uh, that some are entitled to be owners of slaves. Now, it's well known that agriculture in general caused a lot of these changes. What I found when I was reading all of this stuff is that very little was known or written about the animal side of it. See, there are two kinds of agriculture. There's plants and there's animals. Plant agriculture has, has its own kinds of developments, like irrigation systems, for example, developed in the agricultural area. So they could water cropland year-round and grow more crops and have more surplus. Animal agriculture is a different thing. The um, beginnings of domestication of animals begins in what's now parts of Turkey and northern Syria and northern Iraq. And it began with sheep and goats about 13,000 years ago. The people who are beginning to settle to plant some of the crops, the wheat and barley, learned to selectively hunt the sheep and goats that lived in the mountains and the slopes, the uplands, away from the, the, lower, the lowlands where the crops were raised. They learned to domesticate those sheep and goats which means that they learned to control them physically. They were no longer wild sheep and wild goats that had their own breeding practices, their breeding habits, seasonal breeding, their own grazing and migration patterns. The animals move freely, but once they become domesticated, they're captives. They stay, they stay in pens in the village because the villagers want to be able to have a sheep and goat year round. Really, the first thing they discovered from it is the products that they could get from sheep and goats, wool and milk, and then cheese, so they could have a year-round food supply instead of having to go out and look for it in bad weather. So the domestication of animals brought quite an economic boost to those early agriculturalists, so that over time, they became wealthy on what, what the anthropologists call the secondary products of the keeping of sheep and goats and cattle. That is their milk and their hides and their and their other, you know, cheese products. And then we get a weaving industry. So the people who kept animals and domesticated them and tamed them and began to selectively breed them, that is they controlled sex lives. The sheep and goats were first culled. They killed the males, especially the younger males, and they kept the females, because if you keep the females, you build up the herd. You have more calves and lambs each year, and you, you get an enlarged herd. An enlarged herd is wealth. The word capital comes from the Latin word for head. Capital is the head count. It's the number of 
animals that the herds people kept. You can you can make a pretty good argument that the herds people they call them pastoralists in anthropology. The keepers of sheep, goats, and cattle were the first capitalists because they built up these surpluses and they built up the secondary products and they built up the markets and them as commodities. And they traded with the people that lived in cities. Think about it. When agriculture takes over and people are settling and the villages grow larger until they become towns and then become cities and then, then become market centers, the people that live in the cities, and some of them are several thousand people, they couldn't go out and look for food every day. If you're a city dweller, you have to be able to buy food from someone on the outside of the city who's producing that food in the form of meat, milk, cheese, and the grains, the cereals. So yeah, so the cities were dependent on the people outside the city to sell them food in the form of these animals and the cereal crops. So that's when you get wealthy cities they can afford to buy these things. And you get the stratification of classes. You get the elite class that owns everything, including slaves that do the work. And um, so there's there's quite a, a change in culture because before we were farmers, when we lived outside as foragers, we were relatively in balance with the rest of uh, the ecosystem in which we lived. We didn't take more than we use, we didn't take more than we needed. Um, we 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 kept things. We sort of lived in tune with nature, so to speak, and we didn't have an all-powerful God that provided everything. That comes later. Yeah, that's that was that's what we originally. <laughs> and I want you to keep rolling here, but yeah, that was my original question. You're doing an awesome job, really sketching all the themes of the book that I was reading, putting it into words. I love it. Now we're getting a little bit into religion. Um, yeah. And yeah, uh, maybe you, you could talk about that and how you know a lot of people yes. in, in this country too, uh, you know, are, are gripped by religion and uh, read the Bible and take it literally. I think we're one of the most uh, radically religious countries in the world. Um, you know, I think a lot of people. I, I, you know, I forget. I think um, twenty or thirty percent of the country think that Noah's Ark literally happened. So yeah, we're some okay. some of us are just kind of. Um, uh, just completely immersed in, in um, you know, mesmerized by this dogma in this in this book. Um, but yeah, I want, to, I want you to keep uh, rolling here. Um, but yeah, religion certainly has has a role. But I love your uh, discussion too on class, society, hierarchy. Right. Uh, and uh, I, I noticed I read the book fourteen ninety one. I think it was Thomas Mann, I believe. Uh, right. In fourteen ninety three, right. there was a lot of that going on in the Americas too. It wasn't just Europe. Uh, and the Middle East and stuff too, though, weren't there, there were these, uh, I don't know if you studied it as much, but there were some hierarchies and certainly they were right. shaping the environment in the Americas too. So yeah, keep rolling. Right. I just wanted to interject some stuff, some ideas. Yep. Keep rolling. Go ahead. Yeah. The North American um, natives, the indigenous people of the Americas, we call Indians. Some of them had agriculture. They'd learned to plant corn and beans and squash. And some of them had sedentary villages. Uh, and there were other parts of the country where they were still in the hunter-gatherer, or the proper name now is the forager uh, economies, where they basically lived outside and they knew where the food was. They knew where to find food. They didn't cultivate and they didn't ha have animals in captivity. They would hunt and they would gather food. Now, 
they had a, a kind of religion which we know to some extent we know something about it from American Indians because they didn't have a, a one powerful god in the sky. They didn't have gods at all. They basically had respect and admiration and awe for the natural forces around them, especially animals, because animals were thought to embody some of the spirits and the powers of nature. And you may have heard of totemic society. Totemism is where a tribe of people had a special animal that was considered to be the ancestor of the tribe. And it might have been a, a species that they hunted, like elk or deer or buffalo. And in order to hunt that animal, they had to have a lot of rituals. They had to ask permission of uh, what they call the chief of the king or the prime animal of that species. They had to not to pray, not to worship that animal, but to but to ask for the blessing of that animal to go out and hunt one of its members. So they had a view of nature that was sort of they recognized the powers of the spirits of nature, animism it's sometimes called, or totemism. Now, when we become farmers and agriculturalists... Let me, let me hold, pretty, hold on for right there. The, yeah. the ritual uh, stuff, a lot of ritual killings too, right, in the Americas and I'm sure around the world, ritual killings, maybe human beings that were sacrificed and certainly animals. I remember reading some of that in your book. Uh, that's, right. that's pretty... That's pretty cruel. We're, we're killing animals just to sacrifice them for no real purpose, not even to eat them or, you know, to use their, right. um, you know, resources, but to just kill them, um, you know, as some ceremony or, um, you know, it's kind of, uh, uh, yeah, just kind of like a demonstration, I guess. Well, it's, it's very important to understand that before agriculture, we had a respect for the forces of nature. It's very important to, to accept that very important idea that Native Americans that we know of had a lot of respect for the freedom of the wild buffalo herd. Uh, they had a great respect and an awe, in fact, of uh, admiration for what they call the powers of nature that they saw in the form of animals. Animals animated nature for them. So that when they settle down and become farmers and they're controlling the growth of plants and animals, they have a different view of nature because now they're controlling things. They're controlling things that they used to respect and admire. And the story in the Garden of Eden is kind of a interesting because it shows it's about paradise lost. It's about Adam and Eve lived in paradise where food grew on trees and all of a sudden they sinned and they're kicked out and have to work. Now, some scholars have said that this shows that the people had to remember the transition from being foragers, foragers to being farmers. When they were foragers, food grew on trees, and all of a sudden, they have to stay in one place and work to produce food. And they invent a god, a monotheistic god, that gives them license to do this. And um, I've read in several places in anthropology that it was herds people, the herders of sheep and goats, and not not exclusively the Hebrews. There were a lot of other tribes that were that invented the monotheistic god. So the god that we know of that we worship today, not me, but other people, was the invention of herds people in the ancient Middle East. That at least among them, the Hebrew people, who dreamed up a god that was sort of like modeled after their relationship with their flocks 
which is why you see so much shepherd imagery throughout the Bible, because it's an invention of shepherd people. And um, yeah, what do you what do you think about just hierarchy in general, uh, hierarchy in society, putting um, some above others? I've certainly seen that uh, in our class based society here in the U.S. But then at the bottom of that hierarchy, you have the animals, you know, with no rights. So well, you, you kind of have this class society uh, where some people are above others, uh, a small group of people are above the masses. But then at the bottom of that, they even have less rights. The animals who are basically, you know, used, tortured in the name of science, industrialized farming, no rights. Um, maybe even go into like industrialized farming where I, I read something like chickens spend, what, 99% of their life in some tiny little cage before they're yeah. slaughtered. Um, maybe talk to that, a little bit about that. I did, I did bring this up or I, I, I was uh, Googling it while you were talking um, earlier, and I wanted to kind of interject this. The Jungle, a fictional novel by um, Upton Sinclair, published in 1904. Yes. So yes. this the, the treatment of animals, um, industrialized farming and that sort of thing, it's not a new thing. It's been on the public conscious as, a, I think, a bestseller, a very popular book in the early 1900s. Um, it's, it's been going on for quite some time, or at least aware of it, and yet um, industrialized farming and the treatment of animals, it's maybe only gotten worse over the last hundred or so years since that book was written. Well, how much time do we have left on this segment? Because Ten minutes. Ten minutes. Okay. We'll take well, if we don't have enough time to finish it, we'll do it in the next one. But there are two, two evils in Western civilization, patriarchy and slavery, that are directly connected to the domestication of animals. Now, People are going to hear that and they're going to say, oh, that's a stretch. I don't believe that. Well, I've got references in my book. There's several places in anthropology where it's, in fact, I have in mind two Japanese anthropologists that um, have sort of loosely hypothesized that slavery was invented by the people who kept herds because they could see the sheep under their control the goats under their control in a, sort of in a state of slavery to them because they control their bodies and they control their movements and they control their sex lives. I read this, uh, I think it was an, an Indonesian wise tale or whatever, a myth or something like that. It says uh, the orangutans, and I've heard this somewhere else too, primates in general, they have the ability to talk, but they're much smarter than human beings. So they don't talk because they know human beings <laughs> would enslave them. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the scenario is that when we first began to control the herds that we used to hunt, we used to have to go chase them on the mountainside, and now we've got them under our control in a pen somewhere. We control their sex lives. We castrate the males. You know, we select the breeding females. So we've got animals under our control that used to be powerful to us. And I, I read this in the book, too, uh, talking about the example with, like, the female that might not be receptive to the male that was impregnating her. You would uh, restrain the female. That's essentially gang rape, right? Uh, you'd go to jail big time for that. But when it's an animal, there's that's, 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 normal, that's normally how we conduct the breeding, right? Yeah, well, that's, that's more a practice in modern agriculture. But I'm talking about 13,000 years ago. 
when they first brought those sheep and goats under their control, physical control, control the sex lives, control the mate selection, control every aspect of the lives of these animals, that's when it dawned on them that they could do the same thing to people. And where did they get these people to be their slaves? These herds people, and the Hebrews were just one of them. They had a, a, a they had a tendency to need fresh pasture and water supply. When you're trying to keep a herd of several hundred or several thousand sheep and goats, you have to always be on the move because they eat up the grass in one place and they have to go to another place to get more grass and they have to get water in that place. So this, if you can picture the ancient Middle East when you have a lot of these uh, tribes that are keeping herds of animals, there's going to be a lot of conflict with each other. Because if you're going to go over there with your herd and try to get some grass, guess what? Somebody else lives there. Somebody else has got their goats and their sheep on that grass. So if you're going to be successful, you've got to be more powerful than that neighboring tribe. And uh, if you read the parts in Deuteronomy, when the Hebrews came out of Egypt and they moved into the promised land, there was a lot of genocide going on because they needed space for their herds, and they had thousands of animals under their control. So they wiped out the Midianites and the Odomites and the Hittites and the Canaanites. They displaced them because they needed their natural resources for their herds. So this created societies that were quite warlike, and the Hebrews were just one of many. They had to be pretty warlike to maintain the wealth of their herds. And another thing which we have to talk about, if we are we running out of time on this segment, we, because we, we have, have to talk five about more minutes, but which gives, and then we're gonna we're gonna keep rolling here. Uh, we're just taking little breaks in between segments, but um, yeah, I got a tro- uh, quote here by Chomsky: "The Bible was probably the most genocidal book in the literary canon." Anyways, continue. We got a few more minutes. Yeah, we'll take a little break. So the the domestication and control of animals, controlling their bodies and their sex lives, basically sparked the idea for human slavery. And the source of the slaves was the neighbor who had flocks that we wanted to have. We wanted those animals in the grasslands. And by the way, when you're conquering those other people, you can not only steal their animals, but you can steal some of their women as well. And this is documented too. This is not far-fetched. This is not fiction. When one powerful tribe raided another powerful tribe, Very often they would kill or mutilate the men so they wouldn't be a a threat. And they would take the women and the the girls, they called them young girls, they were virgins. They would take them back and enslave them. And this is the the first steps of human slavery was uh, females, women and girls for sexual purposes, either for breeding to increase the family or just for sexual pleasure for the men, the patriarchs of the family. So this that's is still on the, the eve of agriculture. We're still on the eve of agriculture here. We're talking, we're talking 10, 12,000 years ago when we first start keeping animals under our control. We invent slavery and the monotheist God, the all-powerful God who's modeled after our keeping of the herds. We provide for the herds and we exploit the herds. So God, you know, we had a model for an all-powerful God there. Now, we, we have to talk about patriarchy at some point because it's the other product of domestication of animals. And it's a very important development early on in Western culture. 
Go ahead. Go ahead and start a little bit about the patriarchy, and then we'll take a little break. All right. So real quickly, forager people, pre-agricultural people, did not understand paternity, fatherhood. Uh, there was certainly sex between couples, and babies were born, but it was considered a woman's mystery. Women owned it. It wasn't understood that the act of sex and the male ejaculation of semen into the female caused pregnancy and a baby. Um, this was not known until we began to manipulate the sex lives of our domestic animals. Once we began to learn to control the males and the females in the pen of sheep and goats, we began to get the picture that, yes, males are causing this pregnancy and these babies, so that patriarchy is born when men and women, for that matter, discover the very important role of the male animal in sex and reproduction, so that the female powers, the, the women's status and power that they had enjoyed earlier, because birth and pregnancy were a mystery that belonged to females only. There was nothing that men had anything to do with this. But after we domesticated animals, we began to see that, oh, yes, men, males, male sheep, male goats, and male humans actually create pregnancy and babies. So this is where the importance of the male begins to take off. And, of course, the keeping of animals tends to be largely male work because it requires strength. You can't manhandle sheep and goats unless you're pretty strong physically. So there tended to be a separation of labor between males and females after uh, agriculture. And uh, it tended to be male male property. Uh, men controlled the herds. The herd was the wealth. The herd was the property. It was male property. So we began to get male powerful figures when, we, when wealth is based on numbers of animals, capital, head count. We were talking about Two of the evils of Western civilization, which arises in Mesopotamia, the Holy Land, the Middle East. Two of the worst features are patriarchy and slavery. And both of them start with the domesticators of animals, especially the sheep and goat people who became, who, who developed what we call animal husbandry which is the cultivation of animals to produce better crops of wool, milk, cheese, hides, what have you. So um, if this seems like a stretch of like total bullshit to people, I invite them to look at my book and follow the references. This is you not something. You got pages. You got does. I mean, maybe hundreds uh, in this work cited. Right. I, I was impressed. I was impressed. Yeah. It's a good read. I'll plug there it in. There are in references. Natural order. Lots of references, no doubt. There are, references, there are references in my book to anthropology that links slavery, patriarchy, and monotheism to the herds people of Mesopotamia. And I don't mean exclusively the Hebrews. They were one of many. In fact, the ideas that are written down in the Bible by the Hebrews, scholars say that some of those ideas came from outside the Hebrew tribe, that they picked them up in their travels. For example, one of the Egyptian pharaohs was a monotheist. And they think that the Hebrew people, during some of their stay in, in Egypt, in a slave condition, picked up an idea of monotheism there. 
and the idea of the Garden of Eden and the flood, that's, that was a common uh, oral, oral story, oral tradition throughout the Middle East, because the ancient Middle East was prone to floods, the Mesopotamias between the rivers, the Tigris and Euphrates. So practically every culture, every society in that area had some kind of an oral story uh, passed down through the generations about the great floods that destroyed everything. So the ideas in the Bible and in anthropology are not strictly attributable to the Hebrew people. They were just better writers than everybody else. They wrote down what they heard in their travels, and they wrote down ideas about floods and the Garden of Eden and the transition to agriculture and monotheism and so many things that uh, end up in the Bible, which is considered to be, you know, the, the literal truth by some people. Yeah, and I think religion, money, violence, and fear, those are all very popular techniques of control. Um, well, uh, yeah. the idea, concept of property did not exist before the agricultural people. And we know this from what we know about the Native American Indians when we came here. Even though they had some early stages of agriculture, the, the cultivation of corn and beans and other things, they didn't have a sense of property like we know it. Uh, in fact, there's a kind of a rapist, racist, racist um, insult. Uh, talk about someone being an Indian giver. Have you ever heard that expression? I have. An Indian giver is someone who lets you have something or, and then takes it back. Yeah. It, was, it wasn't considered a permanent gift because the Indians didn't really believe in ownership. Like if, if they liked your blanket or your robe, uh, they could use it for a while. It wasn't yours. And especially land, they had no idea of the ownership of land. We don't get a, a concept of land ownership until well into the period where we're settled in, in large cities and cropland. Much of the land around the cities is in cropland. And then the owners of the city, the elite, developed the idea that this belongs to us. And that would not have, would have not thought that way when they were forager people, hunter-gatherer people that roamed freely throughout an ecosystem. They had no idea of owning land. In fact, Native American people could not comprehend the white settlers' um, insistence they, that they owned land was unheard of. It was incomprehensible to them. And, uh, yeah, I have here, I got I to gotta read Jean-Jacques Rousseau. You, you like philosophy at all? Yeah, sure. Well, I like Jean-Jacques Rousseau, maybe one of the first anarchist philosophers, at least had some anarchist tone and theme in his philosophy, but he talked about property. Uh, I believe this was in the second discourse. Um, this is Jean-Jacques Rousseau. I love to say his name, too. Quoting, the first person who, having enclosed the plot of land, took it into his head to say, this is mine, and found simple people enough to believe him, was the true founder of civil society. Civil. Uh, anyways, what crimes, wars, murders, what miseries and horrors would the human race have been spared had someone pulled up the stakes or filled in the ditch and cried out to his fellow men, do not listen to this imposter. You are lost if you forget that the fruits of the earth belong to all and the earth to no one. Yeah. Yeah, well, one of the anthropologists I read, is a name is Richard Lewinson, and he's mentioned in the book, he 
he hypothesized that the concept of property and money that is a, a, an object that has value, that's like a coin, a currency, that the first form of that were the products of sheep and goats, hides, pelts, wool, becomes currency. And you could use that. It was a common currency that was tradable for just about anything in the ancient world because it had value. It was like a dollar bill back in those times. I, so we, I get a, good. we get a lot of these ideas from the, the, from the domesticators, the husbands, husbandry people of uh, sheep and goats and cattle. Uh, I got a quote Mahatma Gandhi here. Uh, what do you think of Western civilization? And Gandhi says, I think it would be a good idea. <laughs> uh, anyways, but um, yeah, I read, have you read, ever read the people's history of the world? Yeah, I think I've seen it. Who wrote that again? I'll look it up here. Uh, 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 his name escapes me at the minute. Yeah, I'll, I'll look it up in one second. But yeah, I, I like the themes uh, of that book. Um, I, it's also, it seems like it's paired up with uh, Howard Zinn's uh, Howard Zinn, History. That's no, I don't think yeah. he read the People's History of the World, though. Howard Zinn did the United States, I believe. Yeah, uh, I got it up here, right here. Uh, this yeah. was Chris Harmon. He wrote the People's History of the World, and uh, Howard Zinn wrote, wrote uh, the United States. But uh, both very good books. But in the People's History of the World, he talked a lot about um, primitive communism, where you know people uh, a lot like you, you were talking about uh, before um, agriculture and certainly industrialized agriculture. Uh, but there was for, forager. They call it forager, forager, forager society, formerly yeah. called hunter gatherer. Yeah, and um, yeah, a lot more, a lot more community. Um, like you were saying, maybe n no property, uh, certainly no property law, um, currency, money wasn't uh, as much needed to trade those things. You know, you all kind of had your role within the community, within the society, so there was no reason to exchange um, money or currency for for goods because you were all kind of working together in a community. Do you think the rise of these like cities and these large groups of people, you think that that's where um, hierarchy and class societies um, started when people well, were foragers in smaller groups, there weren't these uh, systems of power and hierarchy. The forager group was a family, an extended family. The number I've read is between 20 and 30 people were the, were the unit of the forager group and there were lots of them in an area and they kind of divided up the foraging ground so they didn't clash with each other constantly fight over the apple tree or the nut tree or, or whatever the food source was or water and uh, they were probably kin re related to these other groups because you can't breed in the same family you can't have incest you have Three generations of people, let's say, let's say 25 people, uh, a few old people, uh, some couples, man and woman, and their children, and their babies. And they had to keep the numbers down because they're always on the move. They couldn't move lots of people and lots of stuff. Sometimes they had temporary shelters. Sometimes they had uh, rudimentary shelters, rock shelters. Um, but they were always on the move because they had to 
move from place to place to find food. And they would have sometimes simple ways to store food, like they made, they could make a paste out of berries, dried berries. They could store nuts, but they didn't use these as wealth. They didn't use them to trade with others. They didn't have a, a sense of uh, property and currency. It was just food. And they didn't store it up and create excesses. When they begin to settle down and live in one place, that's when they begin to learn to keep food supply year round. So they tend to build up surpluses. And when you build up a surplus of say grain, say wheat and store it, then you have excess, you have more than you need. So you have a, a bit of wealth, like let's call it profit. When you keep something, some food item, a greater supply than you need at the moment, you can trade that for something else. And if you have a flock of sheep, more than you can use, you can trade their products. You can trade their milk and their wool. So that's when you begin to get stratification because you've got people that are building up wealth. And if you've got a chief, a patriarch who owns more sheep than everybody else, he's gonna be a more powerful man because he has more wealth. So he may become the chief and eventually a king. So that's when you begin to get a stratification where you have some people that have more wealth and more power than others because they have more stored surplus, more wealth in the form of sheep or wheat. Yeah, the, the American Revolution, I mean, I, I don't go quite far back as you do, at least with my politics and history, although it interests me. Sounds like you're a real student of uh, anthropology. Uh, anthropology and the humanities uh, and history. You, you read a lot. You're a scholar. Uh, would you say this stuff? This is this stuff is you're really drawn to it. How long have you been studying this stuff? And yeah, I mean, you sound like uh, I've taken some anthropology classes in college and stuff. Uh, it sounds yeah. like you really know your stuff. Well, there's a lot of anthropology uh, coming out there. Um, in the early days when I started studying this stuff in the in 1980s. Soon after the book Animal Factories was published, I, I turned my focus to looking at domestication. And I found one book, then two books, then five books, ten books. There's a, there's a number of really good references in my book. Uh, uh, the names that come to mind, one writer is Paul Shepard. He's a biologist. He's passed now. Another famous writer is an Englishman, Keith Thomas, wrote a, a, a very popular book, Man and the Natural World. And he talks about some of these ideas that came, uh, that occurred to him about the beginnings of Western civilization, beginning with agriculture and the ideas that it planted in society that we tend to celebrate today. We tend to celebrate the great cities of ancient Samaria and the, the great pyramids of Egypt. We, we tend to celebrate the glories and the power and the wealth and the art of those civilizations without recognizing that they were slave-based. They were slave-based cultures. That's where all that wealth came from. And they were male supremacists. I mean, by the time history begins in Samaria, 3000 BC, that part of the Middle East was already fully into agriculture, animal herds of animals and vast croplands. It was already uh, patriarchal. It was already male supremacist, slave-based, and pretty much constant wars with each other over the wealth 
of these uh, uh, agricultural uh, groups, these uh, societies. There were the Hittites and the Canaanites and the, oh my God, the Assyrians and the Chaldeans. I mean, all of the names in the Bible were the people who achieved wealth and status in that part of the world. And when we say the Middle East, anthropologists call it the Near East. They sometimes call it Southwest Asia. But the Middle East is the term that we use, which is the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea, which is parts of Turkey, what's now Israel, Syria, parts of Egypt, and then westward into Iraq and Iran and uh, Afghanistan. But that's the ancient prehistoric Middle East where all of this began to occur. So, and as you were speaking here, uh, some terminology that came to mind, I read some stuff on Professor Richard Wolf. I guess he's a Marxist uh, economist. I am not a Marxist. Uh, I'm an anarchist. We talked a little bit about that in the pre-call. Although I think a lot of Marx's writings were very uh, informative and valuable to me. But anyways, going back to uh, what Richard Wolf talks about, surplus value. So workers essentially, you know, you're working for part of the day to pay your salary. Um, we are... Uh, and, and under these, under a capitalist society, an army of wage slaves um, working for a master for the subsistence to get by. Um, so part of the day we're working workers generally uh, to pay our salary. And then the other part of the day we're working for the capitalist for that surplus value. And of course that surplus value uh, is controlled by the capitalist, not the worker. And, and they were able to uh, enrich themselves with that surplus value. So that's kind of the similarities. Uh, I was listening uh, to some of the maybe more modern economic theory that I have read and are and reading yeah. now. Uh, but then wage slavery, uh, that was the battle cry of the Lincoln Republican Party at the eight, at the, uh, around the time of the Civil War, um, post-Industrial Revolution. Uh, the factory girls of Lowell, Massachusetts, the factory girls – uh, who had working class presses. Uh, we actually had a free press in those days, a working class press, um, who said something like, you know, those who work in the factories um, ought to own them. And the Republican Party at the time and um, some of the Union uh, soldiers thought that that's what they were fighting against. They were fighting against that new spirit of the age, uh, all for wealth, forgetting everything but self. Uh, and saying things like uh, chattel slavery is not that much different than wage slavery other than it's temporary. So you have to have yeah. a lunch break. You have to go home and eat uh, eat dinner and, and go to sleep. You can't be worked 24-7. But, yeah, now now that we're kind of in these sedentary um, – have more of a sedentary lifestyle, we're in one location, um, you know, instead of spending a lot of our times outdoors, uh, now we're – we have this things called like the eight-hour workday. So – Anyways, that's what I was thinking when you were talking. I want to get back to uh, the forager societies, though. Um, yes. The health of uh, the people, they kind of lived, uh, I think, longer than maybe um, oh, that's a early good one. industrial yeah. societies. And they were taller, too. Yeah. You say something in the book, like they were 5'10". Uh, yes. When, when, in, when during the time of the Industrial Revolution in Europe or something like that, the average height was like 5'6". Um, so maybe you can yes. talk a little bit about that, the health of these forager people. Uh, yes, just maybe a full life, spending it outdoors, not sedentary. Yeah, we 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 are so brainwashed about the the lifestyle and the health of the forager. We think that they were starving, that they were always searching for food. They weren't. They knew where the food was. They knew where the nut tree was. They knew the time of the year when they could dig for shoots. 
in the ground, you know, the roots of, of vegetables. They, they knew how to store some of the stuff to get them through the winter. Um, so there's a book that I mentioned in my book. The reference is a book by a guy named Mark Nathan Cohen. And it's called Health and the Rise of Civilization. It's Yale University Press. And he looked at the health of forager societies and compared it to early agricultural societies. And how do you do that? Well, you look at the remains and archaeological digs. You look at bones. You look at teeth. And you look at whatever remains that you can find and you measure it. So he found that the average height of a forager person was greater than it was a thousand years later when that area was inhabited by farmers because the foragers actually had a more varied diet. They ate maybe a, a variety of foods, uh, 50, 60 different kinds of foods. Whereas when they become farmers, they no longer forage. They no longer go out and collect the nuts and the berries and the roots and the shoots. They're living off of barley and wheat, which they would pound into a kind of a flour and boil in water and make kind of a soup, a sloppy soup. And if they had some animals, they might have put a little animal fat in there. Uh, so they didn't have very good diets. Uh, and they had uh, some uh, deficiencies, like their, their teeth aren't as good uh, uh, after agriculture. There's, there's a period when they would have more famines. They have crop failures. But the forager people might have a bad season. They might have some bad weather. But generally, they ate better, and they had better bones and better teeth than they did a few thousand years ago when they became farmers and lived on a monotonous diet of, like, paste, really, gruel, they called it. Right. A, a sloppy soup. And uh, yeah, they didn't do so well. Yeah, we're then, supposed course, to admire these these industrial societies and these, uh, I guess, agricultural societies and these big cities. But looking at your book and your framing, the forager people had a pretty good lifestyle. They had a pretty good, didn't they? Well, that's why that's why the the, the legend of the Garden of Eden is so telling. In a, more than one place, I've said, I've read that that was the memory of how early agriculturalists who are working their butts off to produce a surplus to get through the winter, they had some tribal memory of a better time when they lived outdoors, when food grew on trees, when they were free and they were mobile, and they weren't stuck in a stinking city all the time. Stuck so, in a factory all day long, eight hours a day. Well, I actually read about the peasant society, which the way so I the garden. Well, the Garden of Eden uh, legend is very interesting. It really tells of the transition from living as foragers to living as settled farmers. And yeah, the Revolutionary War, uh, I think we were pretty much replaced kings and queens uh, with corporate executives. Uh, Thomas Jefferson talked a lot about the moneyed incorporations that were taking over society. And he thought that once these corporations took over, that would be the end of the revolution. And of course, uh, he was very lucid, and it has been. Uh, these, these corporations with these corporate uh, uh, chief executives and everything, they are have more wealth and power than kings and queens could have imagined hundreds of years ago. Yeah. I actually read, um, I think, the, the Peasant Society. We talked about the eight-hour workday, spending all day in a factory. Uh, Europeans have, uh, our, our counterparts, European workers, have something like a month more off per year. I think in yeah. America, we still have zero sick days. 
and zero vacation days guaranteed by law, one of the only countries in the world. And then again, looking at some peasant societies, um, it was not uncommon to have 150 days off a year. Could you yeah. imagine in, in, in a modern industrialized society having 150 days off? Uh, I, I certainly don't think the capitalists would like that idea in our brains. We have about 15 minutes. Um, maybe we'll go a little bit longer. Let's see what we can do here in the next 15 minutes. Um, but yeah, I'd love to have you back on. There's a lot of things I want to get to, a lot of things that you brought up. Um, I, let's just go to, let's just go to some, I just wrote down some stuff. Let's, let's talk about it. Let's see what we can get to. What do you think about, so animal rights and differentiating? Let's look, before I get to that, let's look, why don't you, this is, I've been wondering this. Are you a vegan? Uh, are you a vegetarian? Kind of, do you have a personal view? I, I, I understand you're an animal activist. I'm not a vegan. I am not a vegetarian, although I'm very sympathetic to those views and I've interviewed some people that are. What do you think about that lifestyle? And is that part of your lifestyle? Well, I'm a, I've been a vegetarian since 1975, and most of that time a vegan, although not a absolutely pure vegan 24-7 all the time, because I lived in rural areas, I lived among meat eaters, friends, and relatives, so sometimes I'd have to compromise and accept a dish that had maybe some egg or dairy. I never would eat meat or flesh, but I would sometimes have to compromise in the egg and dairy business, but uh, uh, I, I'm pro-vegan. I, I don't buy leather. I don't wear animal products. Um, so that's um, that's uh, become more current now. That it used to be kind of a, a fringe cult-like thing, veganism, but yeah. it's very popular now. It's very common. It's spreading um, uh, alternatives to uh, the animal-based food system are, are much more available now. Uh, so it, it's easier and, and available. And um, I'd have to say that only lately, because of the cri climate crisis, have we realized the impacts of animal agriculture. Do you realize that animal agriculture is second only to the fossil fuel business and impacts on the planet and contribution to climate change? It's huge. It has a huge carbon footprint. When you think of all the cropland that's devoted not to feeding people, but to feeding animals, and the efficiency of the of the conversion of that crop material, cereal grains, plants, the protein and 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 energy in the form of calories, is pathetic. I mean, I just saw the other day. I think, I think like the uh, chicken factory, factory farm of chickens only converts. Uh, uh, I think it's three to five percent of the protein that's consumed by the chickens ends up being uh, protein on our plates. And a dairy business, it's it's even worse. Uh, the very little of the of the protein and energy that the cow eats comes to us in milk and uh, uh, dairy products on our plates. So it's extremely wasteful way of getting energy and protein in our bodies. We get it directly from plants, and we get it um, without the mess and the and the exploitation of animals and the impact on the environment, and especially the devotion of so much cropland to raising the stuff that it takes to feed those animals. What do you think about the um, the global food chain uh, neoliberalization uh, of trade? going to uh, exploited workforces in the global south. That takes a lot of energy, too, to make our food. 
uh, or produce our food, clothing, shoes, uh, all sorts of goods, um, you know, to, in countries of the global south. And then to transport them over here, the fuel costs, the wasted yeah. energy, the wasted time, the wasted resources – Certainly there's no, uh, you know, strategic advantage or uh, geographic advantage to producing, let's say, shoes in uh, Thailand or, or, or textiles in Bangladesh. They could be produced right here in America. The only reason it's produced there is because, uh, again, they have a more highly exploited workforce. So what do you think about the globalized food chain? Um, you know, we, we don't have local communities producing local food. We have these giant agribusinesses. Uh, producing, uh, you know, mass-producing food, meat, vegetables, shipping them around the country. To, to, uh, I'm sure huge um, fuel costs, not alone the, the, the necessities to uh, the energy resources and water to, um, you know, to get these animals to uh, healthy enough to whatever, to, to make into to, to food and to whatever, use their products and whatnot. But, yeah, just what, generally, what do you think about neoliberalization, the globalized economy, uh, globalized supply chains, uh, not only clothing and, and other goods, but food too. What do you think about these giant <laughs> agribusinesses? And uh, I, I don't know. Do you, you think like a more, um, I guess we essentially, I mean, there's, there's 8 billion people in the world, right? So uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I guess some of that, my questions um, as I was reading your book is how do you think we could combat capitalism in these globalized mm-hmm mass-produced, industrialized agribusinesses and all that kind of stuff. Uh, do you think more local communities and producing more locally and, and less chemicals, um, you know, do you think that's a viable solution in a modern economy to feed 8 billion of us? Uh, I know there's, that's a lot there, but what do you think of all that? Well, I think of two countries, India, um, South Asia, and China, account for uh, about a third of the world's population, don't they? Yeah, it's up there, something like that, sure. Yeah, and India and China combined is uh, almost 3 billion people. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, historically, those two countries had largely vegetarian diets. Largely vegetarian diets, Chinese because of Buddhism and the Indians because of Hinduism. They They... They had a principled vegetarian diet, uh, not a vegan diet completely, but a Chinese almost because they didn't have Chinese diet didn't have uh, meat and dairy. Uh, they did use eggs, uh, but so here's two countries that until recently basically had an energy efficient uh, and earth friendly diet, and they've been co opted by. American agribusiness, and they've been converted converted to uh, Western-style diets. And right now, as we speak, the Chinese are the biggest builder of pig factories. They've uh, There's a picture of it on the Internet a month or two ago. Oh, I saw that. Yeah, yeah. They built like a 15- or 20-story pig factory. Yep. Uh, I mean, it's incredible. And uh, they did have pork in the diet before, but because of the Buddhist tradition, it, they had – largely a vegan diet and that, that's where we had you know tofu and seitan and all the meat alternatives and the buddhists were a, a factor in that because they believed in uh, the spirits of animals they might be reincarnated as an animal so here we have a third of the world's population that historically had a vegetarian diet 
And now we're converting them to the American factory farm meat center diet. So let's just look at that and say, that wouldn't be that hard to reverse. We we really need to look at that transaction. And also, you know, what they've adopted is not only the meat-based diet, but the oil and fossil fuel-based diet. Mm-hmm. Because it's known that animal agriculture requires a lot more of that fossil fuel energy to get those crops into the mouths of those animals in those factories. So, yeah, so there's a lot to look at right there. So you think uh, maybe like a more localized uh, supply chain within local communities not going hundreds or thousands of miles for the products that we use on a regular basis would be a good start? Uh, well, it's possible. Yeah, it's uh, it's done in spots around the country. I see more um, uh, year-round crop production, uh, vegetable production, and, and solar, uh, well, greenhouse-type facilities. And uh, some of them are very good ones. So it, it would be possible also to raise food nearer to cities, you know, city, yeah. city uh, solariums and greenhouses. And if you go to Canada, as soon as you cross the border, you see – like huge rows of greenhouses where they grow vegetables because of the winter. So the stuff is technologically possible, but, you know, we've got misplaced, misguided technology because of our human supremacy. The guy like Elon Musk, who has billions, what's this this big technological um, um, uh, commitment to a fucking colony on Mars? I mean, what's, (laughs) what's the point? What's yeah? That's crazy. We need to be solving the climate crisis. Agree. Yeah. We need, need need to be focusing all research and technology and development. Total agreement. Solving the pl- the problems on the planet, and not try to find another planet. That's ridiculous. Yeah, we could e- much easier easily uh, save this planet than certainly terraforming some alien environment. Uh, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of miles away, millions of miles away, however far it is. It's very far away. I think it'll take at least three months to get there. Misplaced technology, misplaced application of research and technology. We really need to apply all of the brains. I agree. All the laboratories to the climate crisis. And what many people don't understand, and I don't know how, if the billionaires can get to Mars and terraforming it, they're not taking all eight billion of us with them. You know what I mean? Oh, no, oh, we're no. going to be stuck here for sure. Uh, great transition here. You're talking about Elon Musk. I'm no fan of his. Uh, yeah. Probably mentioned a number of podcasts, uh, how I, my disdain for that guy. But I just have a story here on The Guardian. Um, Musk's Neuralink, this is The Guardian here, Neuralink faces federal inquiry after uh, inquiry after killing 1,500 animals in testing. Neuralink is some, like a chip. Uh, they're trying to implant into people's brains the, I guess, the breakdown, the barrier between like typing on the computer. We can just think something and it'll pop up on some screen in our mind, perhaps. Uh, but killing of monkeys, apes, intelligent animals. I don't know if you've read that story at all. Have you have you read into the Neuralink and the testing of animals and, and that sort of thing? Because that's what I want to transition to is basically animal cruelty, cruelty and the experimentation on animals in the name of science. So what do you think about all that? My specialty is farm animals and domestication. My colleagues do a lot of the work on um, use of animals in uh, biomedical research and product testing. And I'm not up to speed on all the facts and figures and statistics on that. 
but I will say this that if we're going to if we're going to worship science and technology that can solve all problems, which is what they always argue, why don't they apply that to animal what what we're now doing is using animals to develop things? Why can't they come up with alternatives so that we don't have to be cruel to animals to develop products and procedures and things? You know, it, it, if we can put a man on the moon or a colony on Mars, we ought to be able to quit using animals and torturing them and monkeys in laboratories. I mean, if, if science and technology are going to be the masters of everything, surely they can master that problem so that we quit enslaving sentient creatures who have feelings, who have families, who have emotions just like us. It's intolerable to me that, that we consider that, quote, necessary. So um, I had a neuroscience professor on uh, last week, I think it was, and we had on the pre-call, we had talked about zoos uh, and I just went right. to one um, maybe, I don't know, a couple months ago and looked at a gorilla in the eyes and we talked about it a little bit again on the pre-call and he did yeah. the same thing. When you look at gorilla or one of these great apes in the eyes, you, you kind of see a reflection a little bit. And it just hits a little bit differently. And I don't like zoos at all. Maybe you could talk about that. Um, but there are, I guess, maybe some benefits. This is like a good zoo, well-funded zoo. But certainly that's not how an animal is supposed to spend its life. Although the way that we're destroying the environment, some of these zoos are saving some of these animals from going extinct. Um, yeah. But maybe generally, what do you think about like experimentation, torturing of animals, testing of products on animals? Let's say, for example, like a cat or a rat or a mouse um, and verse, versus, you know, maybe more intelligent animal uh, like, a, you know, a dolphin um, or, you know, a great ape, a gorilla, a chimpanzee. Um, do you see a difference? Do you think it's maybe ethically better or whatever? Uh, more ethically understandable or whatever uh, to uh, test on like mice, rodents, cats versus intelligent beings like like a gorilla or a, a primate? Well, like I say, I, I'm not used to arguing this subject, this field. I specialize in food and farming and farmed animals. And the question I'm always hit with when I, if I do a show, a talk show is, well, if we quit eating meat, there wouldn't be any cows and pigs and chickens. They would become extinct. I say, like, right now we're giving them a life, at least, by eating and killing them and eating them. So that's uh, a common question. Like, this guy wants to make us all vegans, and then there won't be any cows and pigs and chickens. At least they have a life now. What they don't know is, hardly anyone knows this. I'm always surprised and how little people know about our familiar barnyard animals, and just pick one. What do you want to talk about? Turkeys, chickens, uh, pigs, uh, cattle? Uh, As you saw in, um, in, I was watching a documentary, and it was in Africa, there's herds of these uh, wild horses. They were domesticated during World War One, and then after yeah. the war and were set free, and they're wild and healthy and feral and... Well, and thriving it's fascinating it seems like uh in only a few generations uh you know they're back to their natural domain well uh 
what it was getting at was a little known fact that every single one of our farm animals has its wild ancestor called a primogen. That is the original wild sheep or the wild goat or the wild, they're still out there. Only one of the barnyard animals doesn't have its ancestor where it used to be, and that's the cattle. The ancestor of all modern cattle uh, was a creature that was uh, looked kind of like a cow that roamed all over Europe and parts of Russia. It was called an aurex. And it was kind of like the, the European-Asian version of the buffalo that roamed the Great Plains. It was a free-running herd animal. And they were very large, like an adult aurex could be at least six or seven feet high at the, at the shoulder, like as tall as a man. They were large animals. So every barnyard animal, including horses and turkeys, they all have the wild ancestors still in place. And the most familiar example to people in America is the turkey. You know, the Christmas turkey, the Thanksgiving turkey. Guess where that animal came from? Mexico. And they're still running wild. We still have wild turkeys in our own woods. Where I used to live in Virginia, I'd run across a flock of wild turkeys about every time I drove out the driveway. So that's the ancestor of all turkeys in the supermarket. And they could interbreed They're the same genetic, the same DNA. And the chicken, you know, the chicken comes from Southeast Asia, Cambodia, Thailand, Vietnam. The ancestor of that, of our chickens is the thing called a red jungle fowl. And it's still out there. It's still in its natural habitat. So the only barnyard animal that we'd have to reconstruct to be a successful wild species would be cattle. What about the um, selective breeding? I remember reading in your book about all these, you know, uh, purebred, this uh, ideology. And right. if you're not a purebred, you're a mutt. And then what about yes. like all these problems from this selective breeding that these, um, you know, dogs have with, uh, breathing problems, skin problems, diseases. Sure. I think you said the bigger dogs are, they have one foot in the grave essentially at the age of six or something like that. So what about yes. selective breeding for generations and dogs, you know, kind of, they kind of, um, I guess, par- par- they, they kind of developed with us, right? This like kind of par- par- uh, parallel uh, evolution with society, culture, dogs and humans. Uh, we kind of, we kind of took them, and I guess all domesticated animals, I guess, for example, um, you know, they kind of parallel, you know, their, I guess, domestication along with civil society as a society grew, so did, I guess, the involvement of these animals. But what about selective breeding and all the things we're doing to these poor animals and these dogs and all these health problems? Uh, seems like a bad deal for them, I guess. Well, this, this comes under the, uh, under the uh, science or the, the ancient practice of what we call animal husbandry. It's the cultivation of animals to produce desirable traits. In the case of sheep, it was better wool. In the case of cows, it was more milk or more beef. The turkey, the wild turkey, is a bird that can actually run fast, it has good legs, and it can fly some distance, not up high in the sky but it can take off from the ground and fly to a tree to get out of danger. But the turkey that we put on our tables at Thanksgiving, that turkey can hardly walk. It can't fly a foot. 
and it can't even breed. It can't even have sex because of what's been done to its body. They have to artificially inseminate turkeys to produce the Christmas turkey. And if anyone doubts that, I have personal experience doing artificial insemination of turkeys because I I did this, I uh, talked about this on shows so often, and invariably people would call in and say, this guy's a phony, he's a fake, this doesn't happen, this is not true. So I lived in Missouri in a place where they had turkey factories and they had uh, uh, facilities that produced the turkeys that go in the turkey factories. And they had an ad on the radio one day asking for workers to work in artificial insemination. I said, okay, I want to know about that. So I went over there and applied for a job. And I got a job where I had to show up at three o'clock in the morning to this place where we artificially inseminated 3,000 turkeys in one building. And it was just hard work. Basically, we collected semen from male turkeys in one building and then diluted it with a mixture and then inserted it in the in the uh, vents of the female turkeys in another house. So I have firsthand experience in the artificial insemination of the turkey for your Thanksgiving dinner. And uh, so this is all animal husbandry. It's to control the sex lives of animals so that we produce desirable traits. And we've been doing it to every creature, including dogs. The dogs, the dog comes from a wolf. The common ancestor of the dog is the, the wolf that's native to North America and Europe. And what we do is we start selectively breeding dogs or wolves at the time, and we produced all the different dog breeds because we wanted hunting dogs, we wanted digging dogs, we wanted burrowing dogs, we had every kind of dog, hound dogs that follow a scent. We selectively bred the wolf until we got, I think it's, over 350 different breeds of dogs. We got toy dogs. We got giant dogs like the Great Danes. We got all sizes and shapes, and it's almost unbelievable that they all came from the wolf. So, uh, yeah, and I think not just the selective breeding, though, right? We're pumping them with, like, growth hormones and chemicals to kind of fatten them up. Uh, I've seen some pictures of like what a chicken looked like a hundred years ago versus the yeah. big fat ones today that can't even walk. Right. Uh, yeah, what fly, the, like you mentioned, like the turkeys, what they've done to the chicken is they produced a bird that grows very fast. What they did was selected for a metabolism that produced an extremely rapidly growing bird so that the bird reaches market weight, which I think the last time it was about three or four pounds for chicken I've, I, I've forgotten now but it used to take a chicken like when i was a kid in 1940 it took about a month or two for a chicken to reach that weight but today agribusiness has produced a chicken that grows so fast that it reaches that weight in six or seven weeks so we're not even killing adult chickens we're killing young juvenile chickens they're just they're not as big as they would be if they were allowed to grow to their average lifespan, which is about 12 to 15 years. That's how, how long chicken, chickens would live if they weren't harvested in agriculture. So, yeah, it's a fast-growing bird. It gets big really fast, and we slaughter it before it gets too big to go through the automated um, processing plant to slaughterhouse. 
the chicken has been designed to be uniform in its body shape and size so that it can be hooked onto these pins in the slaughterhouse and the machines can kill it and take its feathers off. That's frightening. So uniformity was very important. Um, I want to get maybe two more questions here. I had a sport, uh, I guess, um, professor not too long ago and talked about just the role of sport in society. Sport, hunting, to quote, uh, I don't know, was this like a Roman emperor or something like that? Give, give the people bread and circuses. Yes. Um, I think sport um, distracts society from the bigger problems uh, going on today, sport and war oftentimes too. What do you think the, the role of sport hunting is in society and kind of pits man versus nature, man versus animals? Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's a false necessity. It's a created necessity. There was probably a time when it was arguably necessary to kill an animal to get through the winter as it is maybe with Inuit people in the polar regions, but um, in this day and age, it's strictly recreation and uh, kind of an exercise in ego. I Sometimes on Twitter, I get pictures of people who have uh, uh, killed a, a, a spectacular animal in Africa. Yeah. They go to a great expense to get a leopard or to kill an elephant or a male lion. And to me, that's the most horrible, ridiculous, unsupportable unnecessary thing in the world these these animals are having a hard enough time living in their natural habitat with some egotistical rich asshole coming over and shooting them it's just uh there's no point in that but the rest of the animal sports bother me a lot like horse racing is one of my pet peeves we love the thrill of a horse race you realize how often horses break their legs running around that stupid track so that people can place bets and get the thrill of the of the win of the horse coming over the finish line. It's 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 not a necessary sport. It's not a necessary entertainment. We got so many ways. And in Spain, they have the most cruel sport. Oh yeah, the bull, the, the bull running of the bulls. Yeah, yeah, I read that festivals. Oh wow, that's horrifying. Where they put yeah. the put the the flames on the horns of the bull and then yeah. chase it through the town. I mean, what's the fun in that? What's the joy in that? Why are they doing that? Very cruel. It's torturing an animal yeah. for some stupid human tradition that should have been phased out centuries ago. Yep. Yeah, I, I've wrote this down here. I guess this isn't a question, but yeah, the kind of coexisting in nature, uh, the awe, the admiration of nature, the powers of nature, the beauty of nature. Um, seems like over the centuries, you know, we've kind of lost all that we've lost our right. place in, in the environment our place in society so speaking of society um let's just talk about how it should be structured um you know how would you uh, address uh maybe this i mean certainly like in terms of sport stop participating in it um but you know the environmental crisis the climate crisis that could be the end of humanity end of this beautiful planet we could take um i think of i've uh read some analogies like the uh, the asteroid that took out the dinosaurs. Well, this right. mass extinction event, uh, human beings are that asteroid. Uh, we are the we are the result. We are we are the cause uh, for this mass extinction event that we're in right now. We are the result, or we are the cause of this climate crisis, the heating of yeah. the planet, global warming, climate change, uh, lack of biodiversity. 
Um, so how should society be structured? How should we address these problems? Uh, I'll, I'll go for a minute or so, and then I'll, I'll let you finish. But, yeah, we need a massive, like a Green New Deal, a massive uh, public works project, Internationalism or Extinction. That was a book by Noam Chomsky. So we need it certainly right. at the local level, but we need it on the international level as well, communities working together. Uh, I'm an anarchist, so I hope eventually these nation states dissolve along with the standing armies and the constant war that we're currently in. We didn't even talk about nuclear war, which is another threat to humanity, and that one is self-inflicted. Uh, but the climate crisis, uh, how should society be structured? I think we need to democratize uh, the workplace. I, need, I think we need to democratize society. I really want to replace corporations with co-ops, worker-owned, worker-controlled, these giant transnationals. I want to get rid of them. I want to hopefully a society organized around local communities um, or maybe local workplaces Loosely affiliated societies. I'm an anarcho-syndicalist. That's my vision. So I think democracy is the answer. We need to take the power back uh, from society and take it away from elites like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk trying to go to Mars. Uh, they're destroying this planet and they're trying to go to Mars to, to terraform it and to maybe save themselves. They're certainly not taking us with them, certainly not taking the animals with them. Uh, so anyways, back to my question. How do you solve these issues? Again, lack of biodiversity, mass extinction, yeah. climate crisis. How should society be structured? That was maybe one thing in the book I don't think you talked too much about, although I loved the book. I yeah. thought it was really good, a really easy yeah. read. I read it in like, you know, less than two weeks. So uh, what do you think about all those questions? Those are These are big questions, existential questions, potentially. How should we solve these massive problems we're experiencing right now? Well, the climate crisis is so big and so real and so here and now is forcing us to look at things. And I, I do, I see, see a lot of chatter uh, about that problem on Twitter because that's the one social media that I do. And then when I do talks, it comes up. It's the most pressing crisis in human history. And uh, of course we know the immediate cause, and I, I say this on Twitter over and over again, the immediate cause is over uh, fossil fuels, adding carbon to the atmosphere. That's the immediate cause of it, the primary cause. The ultimate cause of it is our worldview, where we think we're entitled. I use the word dominion in the book. The idea that our species is entitled to do this because we invented a God that gave us a license to own the planet and do whatever we want. And if anybody's doing social media now probably sees these graphs of the human population, the the, the line of population growth. Yeah, skyrocketing. Right. Yeah. They call it the, the J curve. When we before we were agriculturalists, before uh, thirteen thousand years ago, before we learned to plant and manipulate animals, the human population. Does anyone know what the human population was? Well, it's been estimated to be about 7 million people. And that's on all the continents. That's on North America, South America, Australia. Human beings were on all the spaces, the land spaces of the planet uh, 12, 13,000 years ago when the glacier was finally melted and left space for us. And uh, so 7 million people is about the size of the population of New York City. Imagine the population of New York City evenly dispersed 
over all of the land areas of the planet. We lived in uh, balance with the rest of the plants and animals. We lived in harmony with the natural world at that point. Once we started farming and, and became uh, keepers of animals and cultivators of plants, the human population starts jumping up. It goes from 7 million, like 13,000 years ago, 12,000 years ago, it goes from 7 million on the eve of agriculture by the time of Jesus, 0 AD, I think it's 250 million people. So that's already how many thousands of years, seven or 8,000 years of agriculture? Yeah. And then by the time of the industrial age in 1800, we reached 1 billion people. And, it, and, it, and it's, it's increasing even faster now. It took us all those years to get to 1 billion, but it only takes us a decade or two to double again. When I first wrote my book, Animal Factories, the world population was a little over 5 million people. And today it's 8 million, billion. I'm billion, sorry. yeah, yeah. Yeah, billion. So that's how rapidly it's, it's growing. Now you keep in mind, whenever you mention these numbers, it's not just the numbers of people. It's the number of demands that they have now. If everybody wants a car and a television and air conditioner and have American diet, the demand on the planet just multiplies, you know, uh, 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 it's, 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 you know, it, it's the power of cubes. What's, yeah, the, what's got the, I wrote it, I wrote it down earlier today in your book, you talked about it. Uh, just the demand of uh, people on the environment and the resources that we have. I think it's in your first chapter. I mean, just fascinating. So I would definitely recommend people go check out that book. Um, yeah, on the eve of agriculture, somewhere between 5 and 10 million uh, people uh, after 1800 or on 1800 prior to the Industrial Revolution, uh, 1 billion uh, and basically 100 centuries of agriculture 10,000 years brought a thousand fold increase uh, yes. to the human population. Uh, and one America, American has roughly the impact of uh, 50, 50 times the environment of uh, Bangladeshi. Um, yeah. but the average American probably uses 100 times the material energy as a forager before uh, the agricultural revolution. So, this is in the first chapter. Um, just right now, I wrote down some of these statistics. A thousand-fold increase in numbers, fifty-fold increase in the person demand. These are huge. Um, so let's. I, I'm going to ask you a couple of tough questions here. I got in trouble. Uh, I had two Twitter accounts. This is my second one. I remember though. I got. I got a lot of um, black from the left when I asked the question, "What do we do about population control?" And yeah. That's a hot buck, a button topic. Right. Nobody likes hearing that oh. on the left. Uh, I, mm -hmm. I, I want to say that. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not. I'm, not, I'm certainly not talking about any authoritarian means. The best idea I have is education. Uh, we educate people. Um, but, yeah, there's going to be a lot greater impact on the environment if there are 8 billion of us than there, if there are 8,000 of us, right? So, right. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think we're near the tipping point of this environmental crisis, although I don't uh, subscribe to authoritarian means for population control. Uh, this is something maybe we should talk about and educate people. And then my second question is, surely you don't expect us to go back with iPhones and computers and a society mm -hmm. of, you know, 8 billion people to go back to like a forager lifestyle. 
but what I think is maybe, you know, concentrate human beings in these urban areas, uh, mass tr- public transportation, uh, maybe high-speed rail. Uh, hopefully we can get rid of our usage on, uh, or at least de-emphasize our usage of fossil fuels or maybe get rid of them completely and, and turn to more renewable energy and scale them up as quickly as possible because the yeah. time is ticking. But, yeah, what do you think about those top button issues? Uh, well, surely we're not going back to a forager society. And what about the idea or problem right. of population control? Well, population. The key to population control and reduction and shrinking population is uh, the birth rate, the birth rate, the number of pregnancies and babies born, because people do die. And if the death rate exceeds the birth rate, we have a shrinking population. This is happening in Japan. It's happening in Europe and in, in, in progressive countries in Europe. And the key to a declining birth rate is, guess what? Women's freedom and equality and economic uh, access. The, 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 the more we advance women's rights and women's status, the less they're going to want to be pregnant and having babies. What we've done over the centuries is confined women to one role only, and that's the wife and the mother, and to have as many babies as possible. The, the typical farm family of 200 years ago, a, a, a poor farm wife may have 12 or 15 children. Five or six of them would die before they reach maturity. But we had a high birth rate that exploded the population. And today there are actual studies that have measured this. And they find that in countries where women have equality, status, economic access, as in France and Italy, those countries, the birth rate is declining. And the population will shrink because people do die and there will be less. Now, capitalism doesn't like this. Why does no, the right the right is attacking that the right like Elon Musk thinks that uh, population growth children. is a big issue and that's yes. why they're trying to take away abortion rights that sort of thing yeah because they want to sell more stuff if the population is shrinking and capitalists aren't going to sell more widgets who's going to buy all that junk if there's less of us who's going to buy all the junk we produce we've got to figure out how to have a shrinking population of human beings and shrinking consumerism. And, and capitalism and Elon Musk's of the world, the technocrats, have to help us figure out how can we humanely downsize everything so that we have less of a footprint, less of a foot on the neck of the natural world that, that has been sustaining us up until this time. We're about to kill it off. So that's that's what science and technology should be applying itself to is how to solve the problem of yeah. having shrinkage. Not going to not going to Mars and terraforming some alien landscape. We have a beautiful planet here. All we have to do is save it. We're already here. You know why that has such support? Why that's so popular? Because it's it because it's so spectacular. It's so exciting yeah. to think, oh my God, a great machine that's gonna go out into space and we're gonna live in a bubble. That excites people for some reason. You want to go what live in a, you want to go live in a bubble on Mars? That's what they think, <laughs> and you know they, they see the movie version of it, and they see uh, depictions of this thing, and it looks oh my god, that looks so oh, what a thing, you know? Yeah, it's it, it's a matcha. But what my book is ultimately about, and I want to emphasize this as a final thought: the book is all about Western ideology of human 
dominion over the planet. It starts back when we found agriculture. It's written about in the Bible, and it wasn't just in the Bible. It wasn't just the Hebrews. The Greeks believed this. The Egyptians believed this. Every agricultural society developed this idea of human power over nature. That's the essence of farming, is to take power in manipulating plants and animals. And we it's given us a worldview that I, that I call, in a word, I call it dominion, but it's three things. It's human supremacy, human exceptionalism, and human entitlement. So we feel like we're the one animal that gets to control everything else, to own everything else, and use it for our benefit exclusively. Never mind that we wipe out everything else. And the, and, the, and the stupid monotheist belief, the religious belief is, oh, God will provide. That's a delusion. Yeah. So we've got, we've got to address this toxic worldview of human dominion because we, we're killing the planet right under our nose, the planet that created us in the first place. Jim Mason, you pull no punches, do you? You just kind of, you tell it like you see it, don't you? What'd you say? I'm sorry. I say you pull no punches. You tell it like you see it. You come out swinging. Well, there's no point in pulling punches this late in the game when the planet is dying right under our noses. There's no time for bullshit. You know, we're killing the fucking planet. <laughs> yeah. and, it's, and, it, and it's because of our inflated sense of ourselves and the God that we created to give us the license to do this. We have to get rid of that ideology. That ideology is toxic. 100% agreement. Uh, we'll have to do this again sometime. I loved your book. I appreciate you sending me a copy. Uh, great discussion. Um, very candid. I appreciate your viewpoints. I appreciate your passion. Hopefully uh, a lot of people um, feel the same way and they learned a lot today uh, as much as I have. Uh, you have any final thoughts? Where can people yeah. find you? you have any books to promote? Any projects you're working on? No, I just want to promote this book because I think it's so critical to the state of the planet right now. The human overpopulation, the climate crisis, we have to address this ideology that we created thousands of years ago, that we're so special, we're separate from everything else, and it's all our property to do what we want. We've got to get rid of that idea, and that's what my book is about. The book, of course, Jim Mason an unnatural order, the roots of our destruction of nature. Thank you so much for your time today. Again, let's stay in touch. Maybe we'll do it again soon. Um, I appreciate uh, all of your thoughts, and I appreciate the book. Thanks for sending it, and I will uh, definitely make note of it on the podcast. Uh, thanks so much for your time. Anything else? Thank you, MC. I appreciate it. All right. Have a good night, sir. Adios. So long. See ya. Thank you for listening to Necessary Illusions. I also want to thank my special guest, Jim Mason, the activist, lawyer, and author. We had a great discussion tonight, and if you liked our conversation, go check out his book, An Unnatural Order. Again, I am your host, MC Squared. No gods, no masters, I'm out. Thank you.